Turn to Numbers 21. Numbers 21. Really, really cool. I, lo- I love getting into the Old Testament. New Testament's Greek. It's, it's very um, uh, so I, sort of straight up. Like, this is what happened. This is the implication. The Old Testament has all these symbolic stories. And uh, so it kind of adds to the, uh, to the excitement. So that's what we're going to do. Numbers 21. Then let me turn to John 3. If you want to put a finger in that. In the New Testament, um, you know we're going to have fun because i got my Greek Bible here today. So um, I told you by the end of the year, my goal is to be able to exclusively use the Greek for the New Testament. So, and maybe the Old Testament too. Um, okay, John 3, if you want to put a finger there, Numbers 21 is where we'll, we'll begin, starting in verse 1. Everybody there? Everybody pretty close? Okay, cool. All right, here we go. Uh, now, before I read this, I want you to, i got to bump this up a little bit so I don't scream. I want you to think about the fact that this is, I'm jumping ahead, but to help us. Um, this is uh, written much, much later, actually written much later than the story took place. Um, mostly because they didn't do a lot of writing when the story took place. We're talking about a long time ago. Um, but there was a big push from about the, king, about the reign of David, but specifically Hezekiah, and then closer to the New Testament, to really start to put these things down in writing and put them together and all that stuff. So I want you to think about what this story, if written down, maybe a lot of people hearing it for the first time around the time that the Israelites are sent off to Babylon, maybe possibly around there, um, close to the New Testament, let's say three, four, five hundred years removed from the New Testament Jesus time, which sounds like a lot, but it's really not in the grand scheme of the Old Testament. I'm getting real geeky. Um, but think about what this story might be doing in the mind of a group of people closer to the time of Jesus than we typically think when we read the story. Okay. So here we go. When the Canaanite, uh, when the Canaanite, the king of Arad who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim. He, for, uh, he fought excuse me, against Israel and took some of them captive. Then Israel made a vow to the Lord, made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give this people into our hands, then we will utterly destroy their towns. The Lord listened to the voice of Israel and handed over the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their towns. So the place was called Hormah, which means destruction. Uh, verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the, the Sea of Reeds, is the correct translation, but Red Sea, give or take. Um, by way of the Sea of Reeds, to go around the land of Edom. But the people became, listen, the people became impatient on the way, okay? From Mount Hor, they set out by way of the Red Sea. Now, does the Red Sea sound familiar, right? That's the sea that God parted in um, the Exodus story, okay? So they set out by way of the Red Sea, familiar territory, and they go around to the land of Edom, also familiar territory, but the people became impatient on the way. We can all relate to that, right? Verse 5. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food. 
listen, listen how weird this, this is. Okay, listen. There's no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Anybody have seen any problems with this? There's no food, and we detest this miserable food. Okay, so there's no food, yet they have food to call miserable. You see, is it just really weird, right? Um, verse 6, if you thought that was weird, get ready. Verse 6, Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole, and whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. That is the weirdest story, is it not? Okay, so you have people who have become impatient, right? They pray to the Lord. The Lord does what they ask, right? Give us these people, we'll utterly destroy them. The Lord gives them to the people, they utterly destroy them. They just saw the Lord do exactly what they asked for. The Lord has answered their prayer. Moses leads them out by a way that is a very familiar New Testament, I mean, not Old Testament um, way, right? The Red Sea, land of Edom, very familiar. Um, the Red Sea is, is representative of the place that the Israelites were set free from their slavery, okay? So the Lord leads them around to the Red Sea, they go around the land of Edom, and they become impatient. And when they speak against God, God sends poisonous, and, and that's, a, that's really not a good translation. Um, what, does anybody else have anything different? Fiery, venomous, that's not a good translation either. Um, uh, it should be fiery is the, is the more accurate translation. In the Hebrew word, it's literally the word seraphim. Really, so that's, that's super interesting. But um, nevertheless, when you're translating, we spent a whole week with Greek, so this is on my mind. But when you're translating scripture, there's, there's, two, way, there's two lenses that you have to translate through, in case you're curious why we have all these different translations in English. Um, one is just simply Greek. So the word sozo means saved, right? Um, yet it could also mean healed, preserved, set free, kept safe, all these different things. So, so the first kind of stage that you go through when you're translating is what could this possibly mean analytically. But then the way that you narrow it down is purely theological leaning. I mean, that's purely... Th- so, so, um, so what could saved be? Well, unless there's clear context of what this is talking about, you're literally taking your theological leaning and saying, I think this should be translated this. You're about to see one of these ways in a second when we go to John 3. Um, But poisonous is good for the story. Um, Fiery is a little more accurate. I think that might help us with understanding a little bit about what's happening here as we get closer to the New Testament and then specifically our time. See see if you you can kind of hear anything when I say this. Israelites become impatient, and they speak out against the Lord. Their impatience, their their lack of wanting to wait on the Lord, their lack of letting the Lord see them through to whatever he's doing in them, causes them to go blind to the very things that they have not only just seen the Lord do, but the Lord's leading them past all these, these 
symbols of testimony, right? The Red Sea, the land of Edom. Past all these symbols of testimony, and they walk through this. The Lord's like a big, giant, flashing light saying, this is what I've done, this is what I've done. And because they become impatient, they put blinders on, they go blind to it, and then they begin to speak out against the Lord, and they begin to speak out against the one leading them through the way of the Lord, Moses. And when this happens, it's not as odd as it might seem. The Lord sends, let's just say this, uh, fiery snakes among the people to bite them and kill them. Fiery snakes. Okay. Fiery snakes. Well, of course, the, our idea of a serpent today, which is very influenced by things like, you know, Dante's Inferno, philosopher, um, is what? It's, it's a fiery snake devil, right? Okay. So, um, so I want you fire and water in context of the ancient Near East and in the New Testament were things that could not be controlled. Therefore, they were seen as as things exclusively coming from the, in the Roman mind, the gods. So there's there's a, a story of um, one of the one of the many gods of, of Rome that stole fire from the gods and gave it to humanity, and the gods tortured him forever. You know, so so fire carries with it this this idea of judgment, not in a literal sense. But in a sense of, in the culture of this day, fire literally stood for something you cannot control. Therefore, it must come from a higher place. And fire, because it cannot be controlled like it can today, like you go in there, you can turn something on and off, you know. Um, At home, if you have a gas fireplace, you can turn it up, down, turn it off, whatever you need to do. But if you can't control it, what does fire do without being controlled? It spreads. And when it spreads... In a, in a culture that is not built on steel walls like ours are today, right, but built out of things like, I don't know, wood, when fire begins to spread, what does it do? It destroys cities. It destroys vineyards and fields, right? So this is a very, this is a judgment idea, fire. But the reason it is is because it's very culturally relevant, okay? Now, I say that mostly just to clear up some of our misunderstandings, but but also to understand that the Lord sends them fiery or poisonous, if you want to use that as well, serpents. Serpents. Now think, where, where does serpent first appear? Genesis 3, right? Same, it's the same word. In fact, the Hebrew word, let me go down to my notes. Um, nakosh. Nakosh with a bunch of spit. Nakosh. Um, is serpent, right? Okay, so th- just, just think for a second. The story of Genesis 3, which the author is clearly of numbers, clearly trying to point back to, okay? Um, the story of Genesis 3 is what? Humans, Adam and Eve, standing for the human race, the father and mother of the human race. Adam and Eve have this command by God to not eat of a tree of knowledge of good and evil, They disobey, and what happens, right? They're removed from their land. Now, remember what I said about when this was possibly written. But what causes them to fall into this temptation to disobey God? A serpent. Maybe we would say it like this. When Adam and Eve disobey God, they're bitten from the venom of this serpent that that sold them a lie about who God was. 
Okay, so here are the Israelites. They're walking in the wilderness. The Israelites, of course, are fathered Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They're God's people. They're God's kids, literally. And so God's kids are walking through the wilderness. They become blind to the things that the Lord has done, or maybe we would say the command of the Lord. They become blind to it. When they become blind to it, they start to take matters into their own hands. They speak out against God and Moses or eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They take matters into their own hands, and when that happens, the Lord sends what on the surface seems very weird, poisonous stakes, yet if you take the whole entire context of what we're trying to see here, it makes complete sense that the Lord would send the very origination of losing our minds and losing our ways and becoming uh, that which stands against the word of the Lord, that would come in to symbolically bite the people and kill them. But here's what's even more interesting. As this is happening, and they're dying from this this fiery, poisonous, seraphim, ironically, are the things we see at the end of the story of Genesis 3 that are blocking the way back to the tree of life. Um, So as they're being bitten... By these snakes, they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord says, uh, just just, uh, think about this. The Lord says to Moses, make a poisonous serpent and set it on the pole. Same word, or fiery, or seraphim. Okay, so the Lord tells Moses to take the very thing that is killing the people and place it on a pole, let's say it like this, and lift it up among the people. The same thing killing them. Lift it up among the people, and when the people look to it, they will live and not die. Okay? Maybe some of you are starting to make some some connections. The very thing that is killing them the Lord lifts up among them so that when they see the thing that is killing them, it doesn't kill them, they live. How did the story in Numbers 20, how did they even get there? They became blind, going back a couple weeks ago. They become blind to what's right in front of them. So, they begin to be bitten by the thing that is a product of them being blind. And the Lord takes that thing, lifts it up, and calls them to look at it. Because they can't see. But if they look at what they are blind to, if they look at the thing that is sucking the life out of them, instead of sucking the life out of them, it causes them to live. Okay? Now, keep all this in mind. Keep all this in mind. Let me jump to John 3. And if you'd like to go there too, John 3. Um, now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to translate this from Greek because uh, it's a lot better. Um, not saying I'm better, but, you know. Um, so I'm going to read 14 and 15 in John 3, okay? Uh, I, I, I believe personally this is the ending of Jesus' uh, speaking and then the author of John picks up at John 3.16 and begins to write sort of a, a, a monologue expounding upon what Jesus says. But anyway, 
So, so this is most likely the last words of Jesus in this portion of Scripture. Here's how he ends it. You ready? Verse 14, if this sounds different, it's just because I'm taking it from Greek. And just as Moses was lifting up the snake in the desert, in the same way must the son of the human be lifted up that all who believe in him will live age long. Okay? So, let me, let me make a couple of references here. Obviously, Jesus is pointing to this story. Okay? But, but just to make a couple of things. Um, number one, in verse 14, Jesus says that what Moses was doing, okay, it's in the aorist. It's, a, it's a something that isn't stopping. It's something that is continuing. I'm preaching right now. Right? So, it's not done yet it's not in the future, it's now, but it's, it's continuing as well, okay? That's what the Greek aorist is. Uh, we don't have that tense in English, but we kind of do. We just don't speak to it. Um, so just as Moses was lifting this snake in the desert, in the same way must he be lifted up so that all who believe, or maybe we would say who look to him, will live age long. Let me break this down for a second. Um, first off, Jesus calls himself, which is typically understood as, because this is what we always use, the son of man. But anthropo, anthropu, excuse me, anthropu is not man, it's actually just simply person. No respecter of, of gender or anything like that. The word anthropu is literally person. It could be human, it could be person, it could be man, but even man as a representation of like when I say mankind, I'm not speaking to the, the males. I'm speaking to the overall people, right? So Jesus refers to himself here, like many other places, as the son of human. Son of human. Just, just think. Just as Moses lifted the snake in the desert, so also must the son of humans be lifted. Think. Moses is called to take the thing that's killing them and lift it up so when the people see the thing that's killing them, they actually live and not die. Jesus here doesn't call himself son of God. He calls himself son of human, person. So if that's the case, what is Jesus saying? Jesus has become the thing that in one instance, in one season, in one age, is sucking life out of us and becomes that thing lifted up on a cross so that when the very ones who are having the life sucked out of them by choices and blindness and delusions and lies, when we look to the very thing that we were, Rather than that thing killing us, we actually live. Think, I mean, this is huge. Think about this. And then he makes the statement, which is basically what I just shared, that all who believe or look to him will live age long. Now, most of your translations say, what does mine say? Um, live forever or eternal, have eternal life. But the word is... is uh, Right there, aeonion, aeonion, which is literally where we get the word age. And so that what Jesus is speaking to 
is, is not this, um, this, this uh, out of reach, sort of uh, otherworldly idea of eternal life as in we're going to live forever after we die or the rapture happens or whatever junk we think, right? What Jesus is speaking to is you're going to live all the days that you were designed to live. You're going to have a full life. Jesus says it like this, I have come that you might have life and life abundantly or to the full. So the idea that the author of John here is speaking to or drawing upon is Numbers 21, which is a very familiar passage to an Israelite, but especially to a leader and teacher such as Nicodemus, John 3. And it's Jesus saying that he himself will be the serpent that is lifted up for the ones who have been bitten by death due to their own deceit so that they can live. And not just live, so that they can live in the fullness of the quality of the life that they were made to live. It's, just, it's, it's like saying, you will live all of your days, or you'll live all the days that you were made to live. We say this sometimes at funerals when we say, um, they lived a full life. Same thing. The, the idea is they lived to the full the days that they were given. Now, of course, us in Christ, of course, there will be an unlimited amount of days. But, but that's, that's not what any of this is speaking to. Our, our society, our Western culture is a very mathematical culture, which is great in some instances and horrible when it comes to Scripture. Right? You know, when we hear eternal life, we think many, many, many days, everlasting amount of days, forever. Amen. But who cares how many days we live unless the quality of the days that we're living is transformed into what they are supposed to be. For example, go to someone who's struggling with uh, crippling anxiety. Many of us have gone through these seasons, right? But go to somebody who's struggling with crippling anxiety. If you go to them and say, you're going to live so many days, you're not going to be able to count them. That's not good news, right? You know, you know what I'm saying? The good news is the fact that Jesus has come to take the truth that makes you anxious and trade it for a truth that you can be free from the anxiety in. That's eternal life. You're going to live eternally. A lot of the Israelites wouldn't, none of the Israelites, none of the Jews would say the name Yahweh. It was holy. It was too holy to say. And so they had all these different ways of speaking about the Lord. Jehovah became one, which is a really odd etymology where it came from. We won't get into that today. Um, but Jehovah is actually sort of a mixture of a bunch of things that really wasn't anything until later on. It was, it's, it's really weird. Um, but... So it's always odd when we sing like uh, songs about Jehovah and stuff because it's like, actually, that's not really original. But, um, but anyway, but they wouldn't say Yahweh. Um, sometimes they would say things like in our translations, Lord. But one of the words they used to speak about God is the eternal or the eternal one. And, and again, they're not speaking about one who has so many days left ahead of him that there's no amount of counting. It's, it's speaking to a quality that is outside of this. It's other than. It's holy. Okay? So the serpent, the serpent 
is that which infects us because we have grown cold or blind or apathetic to the things that God has done for us. Right? Like, I, I wish, and I'm not here saying, like, you know, what the devil is and all that stuff, but, but I wish we would, we would get out of our, our, our thinking, you know, I'm having a, I heard somebody say one time uh, they had, like, thousands of dollars in debt, and they blamed the devil, which, in an original way of thinking about it, yes, absolutely, it was the devil. It was the devil within. You made a bad decision with money. But, um, but the, the, this, the, the serpent this is this thing that is constantly pulling us back to the place where we take control. The, the, the serpent is us in control without need for God. It's literally what it is. It's, it's us taking the reins and saying, I've got this. This is what the serpent is. This is what the diablos is, the, the, the Satan Right, the evil one. Um, that's what this is. It's 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 a us apart from God in control, and we see in Numbers twenty one that this produces death. Yet God, in His grace and loving kindness, has provided a way for us to be set free from the thing that is killing us. And what is it? It's us becoming so aware that we're set free. So we're in this season of Lent, um, which we don't really do a lot with. Um, I actually had a weird Wednesday. Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. Can I, can I say something to you guys? So, uh, I mean, I, I'm going to. So, um, Ash Wednesday. This is not a knock on Ash Wednesday or anything like that. Um, I was in a, 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 a context that really celebrated Ash Wednesday, you know, the whole thing, um, which is totally fine. If that's, that's what you do, all this stuff is great. Um, but I was asked to be a part of a service for Ash Wednesday while I was there. And um, I really struggled with this. I ended up saying no um, and wasn't a part of the service. And here's the reason. It's because um, Ash Wednesday is a reminder of death and our mortality. You know, So we, we, there, was this, there was a service, and it was all like dark, and it was these minor chords. I don't know if this is still on, but it was very like... You know what I mean? Just very just dark and you know, evil and stuff like that. And I'm like, okay, like I told, I get it. Like I get it, you know, or uh, from ashes you were taken into ashes you will return. That's the favorite verse they use. I'm like, I, I totally, I understand it. That's awesome. I love the fact though that this year, Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday were on the same day. That only happens every now and then. And, uh, and so we were in kind of a group and I was trying to figure out how to get out of this without, you know, getting too deep into an argument. And, um, but anyway, and I was, I was like, I, just, I, was, I was literally, I was like, I think it's interesting that Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday are on the same day. And they're like, how so? And I was like, I don't know, I just think it's interesting. <laughs> you know? I didn't, that's all I said. And then I was like, I can't do the service. Um, but, I mean, think about this, think about this. Uh, that the, you know, from dust you came to dust you will return. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, we have a gospel of things like, for example, I don't know, resurrection life, right? We have a gospel of he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the rest of God. We have a gospel of, like I just read, life 
age long, which, which speaks against this idea that we're still stuck in the same junk that caused Jesus to become flesh in the first place, right? And so on Ash Wednesday, everybody, most of them had no idea, but everybody was forced to look at two things. Now, a lot of great people tried to marry these two ideas, but I don't know if you can. Two great things. One was the expression of love, and one was, a, was an expression of death and mortality. And we had to make a choice. Are we going to live in this space of an expression of love, or are we going to live in this space of an expression of mortality? Here's what's interesting. While the church, for the most part, was in a somber expression of our death, the world outside of the church was in a loving expression of our desire for one another. Interesting, right? Isn't that so interesting? Now, again, I'm not speaking against Ash Wednesday. I just won't be celebrating it, you know? If you want to do the thing, you can. You know, somebody, somebody, somebody asked me, like, are you going to get the ashes? And I was like, no, I'm going to break my skin out. Um, but, but you know what I'm saying? And again, I'm not speaking... But what I'm saying is, is this is what we carry. Like when we preach the gospel and when we read the scripture, we all approach it, no matter how many years you've been in a space where that's trying to be redeemed. We all approach this with this thought process of we're dead. Yes, apart from Jesus. But we're not apart from Jesus anymore. And not because we've done anything, not because I repeated a prayer. I wasn't apart from Jesus before I repeated a prayer. I know that's like real like, you know, bro, how can you say that? The word became flesh. The flesh didn't become the word. The word became flesh. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It wasn't us that initiated this oneness that happened in the incarnation. It was God. And he did it because we were incapable of doing that on our own. The law was given to us, Paul said, so that the realization of an incapability to do it on our own could be seen fully for us, right? So we have the law so that we can see of all of these different laws, there's no chance in heaven that I can get back to a perfect standing with God. It was that God did not give the law with anything on his mind thinking that they're going to be able to do this perfectly. He gave us the law knowing we wouldn't be able to do it perfectly so that where sin was increasing, grace could increase all the more. And the law brought our sin, our formlessness, our running, it brought it to the light so that as it is brought to the light, we see the one who has become that sin on a tree lifted up among us, and as we look to him, the very thing that sucked the life out of us in one age now sets us free to live forever, eternally, age-long in him. I mean, this is big. What they have chosen in Numbers 21 in one place is death, and in another place is life set free from death. Here's a little side note, even more funny. In the time of Hezekiah, uh, if you go keep reading, um, 
this, this bronze snake is actually a, a, a false god that people start worshiping. And so Hezekiah has to destroy it. Um, so, so snake, snake also carried this, uh, this context underlying of a, a, a very common false god that the people in the ancient world worshipped. Okay? So there's all these different layers. But, but what God is, is speaking here, and if I have like a punchline that you take home with you today, maybe this is it. What God is speaking here is that you have to see what is killing you so that you can be set free from it. Maybe I'll say it like this. You can't be set free from the stuff that you are blind to. Maybe I'll say it even more like this. You can't be set free from the stuff stealing your life until you see it. You know what I mean? Like there's all these these underlying things that we live totally blind to that is stealing life from us that the Lord is calling us in the person of Jesus, but he's calling us to become so aware of it that we are actually removed and set free from its poison. You know, and that could be, I mean, that could be something so simple as, you know, like for me, that could be something so simple as putting way too much stock in what somebody says about me, you know, or, or it could be something deep. It could be some traumatic experience or experiences that you experienced for a lot of your life that you've just shoved down and down and down and down and down and it's never been able to come up to the surface, but it's holding life from you. It's holding you. It could be something that deep. And I, I, like, I don't want to carry that stuff too lightly, but at the same time, I want us to see that the, the gospel from another angle that we don't really talk about a lot is that Jesus became... When we say sin, it's, it's an all-encompassing thing. It's not just I told a lie or looked at something I shouldn't have looked at or I you know, uh, drank too much or, or whatever, right? When we say sin, it's an all-encompassing thing of anything that isn't in line with God life. It, it's, a, it's living out of step with truth. And so when Christ becomes sin... He doesn't just become all the bad decisions that we've made. He becomes all of the stuff that holds us down, that holds us back. So to use anxiety, because that's totally an epidemic. He becomes the anxiety. He becomes the sleepless nights and the worry. Because we weren't made for that. Take my load, which is easy, and my burden, which is light, and give me yours. Right? We weren't made for anxiety, and yet that's a very real thing that all of us care. So he becomes that. He becomes it. So that as we look at him becoming the very things that have taken life from us, and we see that he's bearing them for us as it is lifted up. See if this makes sense. Jesus says, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all men to me pulling upon the same numbers 21 when he's lifted up everyone will be drawn to see 
the truth of who they really are by way of him bearing the lie of everything that we are not. Christ the Son becomes sin so that we could be free from sin and instead trade Zoe life for what was killing us. I, um, I'm almost done. I'm done. That's the end of my notes, but um, I got time to riff a little bit. So uh, that's what I like doing. Um, I prefer to riff. I, um, we, I didn't say this. We went to the dance last night, and, um, you know, it was, uh, I'm going to do a writing on this because I'm very passionate about this soon. Um, but it was so interesting that uh, we go to this dance, and this isn't all, but this is probably half of the dads there, um, me and Vader dancing, you know, this whole thing, I, like trying to pretend like I know what I was doing. And, um, and I look around, and there's, uh, I mean, I don't even know how many dads that their daughters are um, dancing, and they're doing this. Have y'all seen this? You've seen this, right? Y'all went to Adventure yesterday? You probably saw this. Right? Um, or they both got a plate of food. They sit down at a table. The daughter's sitting here eating, you know, waiting for a prompt or something to spark a conversation or whatever. And, and the dad's, you know, just. And where a lot of us, not to get weird, but where a lot of us grew up um, with a, a penal substitution uh, father, God, because that made sense in our culture. This generation is going to grow up with a God who's completely absent. Completely absent. Because my dad was completely absent. And there's a difference between being present and being in the same room and absent. And a lot of us think, and this has a point, I promise, to what we're talking about. A lot of us think um, and I want, when I say us, I'm speaking to fathers or future fathers, etc. We think that as long as we're in proximity, we're spending time together. And there's a lot of kids that are growing up right now that when they get older, they might have been in the same room with their dad and mom. And I'm speaking to fathers because I'm, I'm a dad. They've been in the same room with their dad for hours and hours and hours and hours. And then when they grow up, they're going to say, I don't even know who my dad was. My father was absent. We were in the same room, but he had this, like, who would have thought, I was, I was about sophomore year in high school when the first iPhone came out. Who would have thought that one company coming out with a piece of technology like this, which is great when it's used right, would cause an entire generation of kids to lose their parents? Who Like, literally, who there's, there's people who have had the uh, very unfortunate experience of walking through a, an experience of, of a death of a parent. I mean, I can't imagine the magnitude of, of carrying that. I mean, it's, it's a very big deal. Um, and maybe some of you grew up without one or the other. Maybe just whatever happened, whatever situation, one just wasn't present your whole life, etc. But I don't think we speak enough to the parents that are there, but they're, but they're not. You know, 
And, um, and here's why I say all that. I say that because I'm, I'm looking around, and you know how my mind works, you know, at this point. It's, it's just always going a million miles an hour. But I'm looking around, and I'm even seeing some of these kids. I won't cry, but, like, I'm, but it, it, like I was so torn up by this. I'm seeing some of these kids look at, like, me and Veda, and you can tell. You just know kids. You know, how, you know kids, you know, um, especially you guys that are teachers. You know. You look around, and you can tell this kid, this, these little girls are watching me and Veda, they, and you can see in their eyes, man, I wish I had that. You know? That says nothing about me, you know? I'm definitely not perfect. But I'm, and it speaks to, but then on the other side of it, there was a handful of dads there with their daughters that had to be at least 16. Right? Very, very few of these, but they had to be about at least 16. They were older. There's very few of them because, I mean, you know, you know how kids get. Bella, you better not be like this. Um, but, but you know how kids get when, you know, they reach a certain age and they're like, I'm not going to dance with my dad, you know? Um, Veda will never be like that. She'll be forced. Um, <laughs> she ain't, I'll have a choice. But, but I'm looking at these older kids, these older girls, and they're having a blast with their dad. And I noticed the one thing that's different about those dads from the other dads is I never at any point saw those dads disconnect, ever. At no point did they disconnect. So the connection, their, their, their presence and attention for this daughter's entire life, now yes, they probably grew up in an age where there wasn't as much technology as today, but their, their presence and attentiveness has created a relationship with a daughter that is going to not just last as long as the father or the daughter is alive, but it's going to begin to change how the daughter views a potential husband and how they begin to parent their kids and then how their kids parent their kids. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, here's why I say this, is that Christ... By becoming what he did, the incarnation, I know I say this every week, it is, if John 1.14 isn't in Scripture, um, you might as well throw the whole thing out. John 1.14 is, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. If that, if that verse is not there, you, you, can, you can literally just toss it all away. Who cares? But the word becomes flesh. It's the word is literally in this moment becoming what he didn't have to become. And he's looking at us in the poison, in the death, in everything that we've done. And he's saying, I see you. If I have to get down into the dirt where you are, I'm going to make you look into the eyes of your creator and know one thing beyond the shadow of a doubt, I see you. I'm not just telling you to stop sinning. I became the very thing that I'm calling you out of. I'm calling to you to be set free from inside of the thing I'm setting you free from, right? I'm not telling you stop lying. I became all of the lies, And as I become that and I am lifted up and you see me, then you have a call. You have a dare to leave all of it behind and follow the one who became all the stuff that he did not have to be. But out of desire, took all the stuff, 
all the distractions, all the junk that we had placed in between us and the Father, he took it all and pushed it aside and said, I just want you. I don't care how good you dance. I don't care how good you speak. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how good morally you are. I just want you. The, the, the prodigal son, who is not prodigal, goes home, and before he can finish recounting his Lord's pra- his, his repeated prayer, right? I've sinned against you in heaven. Please, I'm not worthy to be, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just a, sin- I'm just a lowly sinner, but please, God. The father says, no, I'm talking about that. Go get my robe. Go get a ring. I don't care about that, you know? Well, brother, you have to repent. You absolutely have to repent. He came home. He repented. Repentance is literally a change of mind. So when he's in the pig slop, he says, why am I eating pig dookie? Right? My dad's servants, at least they have a pretty good meal. I just go home. That's repentance. He did it. You know what I mean? And he goes home. Repentance is not, this is what we think. Repentance is not when he goes and says, I have sinned against you. I have sinned against heaven. I'm not worthy to be called your son. That's not his repentance. That's a lie. Which is why the father stops him. Because he's not a sinner. He's not unworthy. He's not worthy to just be called a servant. He's a son. And he's worthy, not because of anything he's done, but because his father is the one who determines how worthy he is. And his father says, you're worthy. That's it. By declaration of the father, you and I are worthy. Apart from works. Paul says this. We've been saved apart from our own works so that no man can boast that he's done it on his own. Right? We've been saved, we've been redeemed, we've been brought home, we've been made right, all because he became the poison, he was lifted up, and he drew us back to himself, and all the stuff that killed us now has been removed from us, and we have life to the full, age long. And the reason I'm teaching this today, I had another message, and I might do it next week, Honestly, I probably won't do it for a long time. Um, about Mark 4, it's really interesting where Jesus tells them to go out to the, you know, to the water and there's a squall that comes out and they say, do you not care that we're dying? Do you not care that we're perishing? And Jesus steps up and he says, shh, storm calms. And he says, why are you afraid? Okay, so I'm, I'm, on, I'm hold back. I have a whole message on that. But I felt today, specifically this morning, as I was praying about this on the way here, because I don't normally have two messages and pick in between one, but today I did. And, uh, but I, I want you to see, maybe there's some stuff, because we've been in this thing of blindness and sight and all this stuff lately, um, but maybe there's some stuff in our lives that we've been blind to that's taking the life out of us that we need to look to Jesus to see the very thing that's been removing life so that he can place life back within us, right? Whatever that is, whatever that is, um, even, listen, I'll speak to some of you guys who are married, okay? What, what, is, what are some things that are sucking life out of your marriage? And you might say nothing, and that's amazing. But is there anything that is, that is taking the life out of you, your marriage, your relationships, what you do with your life, maybe even your job? What are those things that are taking life out of you that you need to look to Jesus and see that he's born all of those. He, he bears them. 
He's been lifted up, and now you can have life in the place. That's all you have to do. Notice that in Numbers 21. All they had to do was see the bronze snake, and they're free. They have to do anything. Just look. Literally, Moses just had to tell the people, look. You know, they're all puking their guts out and dying from all this poison and all this stuff, you know. And all they had to do was just see. Just look. Here it is. And as they set their gaze, as they fixed their gaze back on true north, the poison is just removed. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, this is, this is huge. Look to Jesus and the poison begins to lose its power inside of us. Let me say it like this. Look to Jesus and all the fiery stuff begins to be dwindled. It begins to go away. And now instead of preaching the gospel of the fire of hell, we can instead preach the gospel of eternal life. Exactly. There's a reason why you can't find the phrase the fire of hell in anywhere in Scripture because it ain't in there, you know. Um, I'm not saying anything about, you know. Re- well, I'll take that back. Revelation says that uh, Hades and Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. Take that home and smoke it. Um, you know, um, like how, do, how, does, bro, well, how, how does that work? I thought hell was the lake of it's a lot. Um, but you see what I'm saying? And here's the irony. You want to hear something really cool? I'm getting in a lot of trouble, but I've been off a week. Um, and if I'm in trouble at this point for speaking truth, like, Lord, um, we're beyond that. We're, y'all, are y'all cool with that? We're not, people, we're not typical people in South Carolina, right? We don't hear stuff that we don't agree with because Brother Bill said this when I was growing up, right? We don't do that. We're way beyond this, right? Guess what we've done? We got Greek. You know? Um, okay, so. <laughs> but isn't it interesting, you know, that fire, this fiery serpent, I want you to think about this, is this thing of destruction. And then you start going back through Scripture. Yeah, I don't know, for example. Uh, Moses is called to set the people free. How was he called? It's a burning bush. But the bush is not consumed. It's on fire. Okay? And what's in that fire? presence and voice of God. Awesome. All right, you go to Exodus. They are led out of Egypt, out of their slavery by what? A pillar of fire. Amen. And they're not destroyed, they're led out. Um, Okay, they go to Sinai. God comes down on Sinai to enter a marriage contract with his people, and Sinai is what? Engulfed in fire, which is the presence of God. Awesome. Okay, you go to Elijah. And Elijah is taken away in chariots of heaven with fire. Um, you go all throughout the Old Testament and you see time and time and time and time and time and time and time again that this thing that they believed was for their destruction is actually the place where God is refining and taking them out of the thing that is actually destroying them. All right, so you get to the New Testament. Well, what about the New Testament, brethren? Well, in Acts 2... The Holy Spirit falls on the church. And how does the Holy Spirit fall? With fire, right? And it doesn't destroy them and it doesn't consume them. It commissions them to be filled with the very presence of God. And then you got Revelation, which we'll take a whole nother day to talk about one day. But here's my point. It's interesting that these serpents are fiery in the original text. Fiery serpents, right? Uh, the, the very thing that they, that they thought of in destructive ways 
is the very thing that is actually, once it's lifted up, going to set them free. Right? Man, the wrath of God is bad. Or is it? Or is the wrath of God aimed at everything that is standing between us and him? Because if so, it's good. Bring it on, baby. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I pray that all the time personally. I'm like, Lord, let, the, let your wrath fall on me. How can you say that? Because it's removing every little thing that's sucking life out of me. I need the wrath of God to fall on my marriage, on my relationships, on the way that I pastor. Why? Because once that thing falls, it's going to take the venom out of those snakes and rip it out. I mean, it's amazing. It's an amazing thing, right? Repentance, absolutely necessary. What I just taught you about fire, every one of us in this room just repented. We just changed the way that we thought, right? Hopefully, you know, maybe some of y'all are just not going to come back. That's fine. Um, but I'm, I'm, this is huge because we've got generations coming behind us that have all these views of God and all these views of life and all these views of church that if we could just get it back to just what it is, you know what I mean? It's not like we're speaking against something that is, that is you know, this big theological debate. There is no theological debate in places of theology, right? Like we know the story of God in us, all we've got to do is simply submit to maybe it's different than what we thought. But if we could get to the place where we see it as what it is, Lord, now we're opening up an entire world, or to use the analogy of Narnia, we're opening ourselves up through the wardrobe to a whole world we had no idea was there, you know? And I'm, I love this. So uh, this week, Matt, you don't even have to come up here. I'll wrap it up. This week, uh, really, I want, you to, I want you to pray, seek the Lord, but as you seek the Lord, I want you to ask him to reveal any blind spots in your life that maybe you've put tunnel vision so um, strongly in that you're blind to what's happening, that you're blind to the things of the Lord, that you're blind to what the Lord is doing, and it's caused you to become maybe impatient, maybe it's caused you to doubt, maybe it's caused you to be stressed or anxious or you know, whatever the case may be. Call on the Lord to reveal those things in the person of Jesus. And as he reveals those things, he'll set us free. That literally is truthfully what Lent is all about. It's taking this journey, this journey to resurrection with Christ, following the journey in the wilderness, the 40 days where he fasted and prayed and all that stuff. So a lot of people you know, fast during this time or get rid of things. But nevertheless... This season, though, leading up to um, resurrection is literally that. It's, it's becoming aware of things that maybe you're not aware of so that on resurrection day, you can be resurrected. You know? Um, so let me pray that the Lord will begin to do that work in us, and then um, we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up. So y'all pray with me. Father, we thank you that you're a God who is constantly calling us to a place of life. You're constantly calling us to a place of redemption. Um, but for us to get there, it's not, it's not a lack of access. And it's not a lack of truth or desire on your end. Um, us making that journey is simply a lack of willingness on our end. It's a, it's a blindness on the inside of us. So would you make us aware of that? Would you make us aware of all the things that is sucking life out of us? And not just make us aware, but would you allow us to orient all of those things in 
the incarnate son. So as we see him lifted up, the poison loses its ability to take life from us. I also pray specifically for our church. It's, um, we live in a culture that is so, and we talk about this a lot, momentum-based. And um, as, we, as we make the journey down a road less traveled by, would you allow us to be people of initiative? Let me say it like this, that we don't have to be spurred on to do something. That we become so in love with you that our yes to you is all the spurring on that we need. Whether it be something as simple as what we're doing as a church, being participating and, or not being participating, but participating, being active, being present. It'd be something like giving. But, but even apart from that, whether it be simply, what, it, what does it mean for us to be a church family outside of the walls, apart from whatever Josh is doing or Matt's doing or whatever the case may be? Like there's all these pieces that we're, we're moving into as a mature church. And Lord, I pray that the one, thing, the one thing that will suck life out of a church is the need for somebody to rile us up all the time. Because it'll work until it doesn't. But we're going to be people that are steady, that are consistent, that are hopeful, that our yes is our yes and our no is our no. People full of the Spirit. So God, I love you and thank you for this church. Thank you for this people. We ask all this in your name. Amen.